Let's turn to God's Word, uh, Romans chapter 3. Before we do that, can I just uh, mention the communion this evening? If you want to become a communicant member this evening, then please do speak to me at the door. Also, if you're looking for a fellowship group at lunchtime on Wednesday, we have one here that meets from 12. Um, the actual study takes place from 12.30. And then there is an open doors petition at the door, Hope for the Middle East, which is calling upon the government and the United Nations to ensure that Christians and other minorities uh, are protected, really, especially in the, in the Middle East. So please, uh, if you would like to sign that, please do so at the door. I don't know, I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up if you've ever been to a psychiatrist, or if you are a psychiatrist actually. Um, they have been known to frequent this congregation. Um, but if you imagine going to a psychiatrist and you, you go in and you sit on the psychiatrist's chair, or I think legendary, they're supposed to have a couch, and a bad psychiatrist is going to tell you what is wrong. A good psychiatrist is going to help you to see yourself what is wrong. Um, the passage that we're going to look at in Romans chapter 3, Paul is coming into this culture, into this city, great city of Rome with such a variety of people from so many backgrounds, and he is helping them to see what is wrong and why they need Christ. And uh, sometimes we might look and we might say, well, what's wrong with the world? My favorite answer to that ever was G.K. Chesterton, who wrote to the Times, Dear Sir, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton, which just about summarizes it up. But then what's, what's wrong with me? What are the difficulties and the problems and the issues that we have? Let's not think about what's wrong with other people. Let's think about what's wrong with me. And here's a great quote. I, I wrote it down because uh, just, I just thought this was tremendous about how we deal with that question. As soon as a man lifts his nose from the ground and starts sniffing at eternal problems like life and death, the meaning of a rose or a star cluster, then he's in trouble. Most men spare themselves this trouble by keeping their minds on the small problems of their lives just as their society maps these problems out for them. These are what Kierkegaard called the immediate men and the Philistines. They tranquilize themselves with the trivial and so they can lead normal lives. I suspect that's what most of us do. We tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. I think it's just a great phrase. We tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. What concerns us is what we're having for Sunday lunch. What concerns us is what we're going to do at work tomorrow. What concerns us is what really causes us to be emotionally upset is the soap opera character that's died on television. What concerns us is the fact that uh, Scotland are now brilliant at rugby, world champions, until the next game. But these things concern us. And we don't really want to face up to the realities of life and death because we can't face up to them because it just overwhelms us, it terrifies us. It, it, reality is impossible to face. 
And so we tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. And one of the problems is when you um, are drugged in that way, when you are tranquilized in that way, then some of the deeper issues don't get faced. And one of those is guilt. You, you might be the kind of person who says, I don't feel guilt. I've got nothing to feel guilty about. Well, I'm sorry, but you are very foolish and probably emotionally dead. On the other hand, there are those people here who the minute you hear the word guilt, just almost want to go into a panic because you feel guilty all the time. You are obsessed with guilt. You are overwhelmed by guilt. Guilt is one of the most negative and debilitating emotions you can feel. So how do we deal with the problem of our guilt? I had a friend who went to see a psychiatrist and was struggling with issues of guilt. And the psychiatrist said to them, you know what you need to do? You need to go and get laid. You need to go out and get drunk. You need to just go and have a good time and forget things. Appalling advice. What does, if you like, the divine psychiatrist say? Well, let's turn to God's word and let's turn to Romans chapter 3. And we'll come in at verse 9, where at this point... Paul has been arguing that all the Gentiles in Rome, all the non-Jews, all the pagans, that they're under God's wrath. They know about God, but they suppress it. They squash it. They behave in other ways. But he's also said all the Jews are under God's wrath because they have the word of God. Basically, they don't keep it. He's then asked, what's the advantage of being a Jew? And in verses 1 to nine of, of one to 8 of chapter 3, he's, he said, look, there's a lot of advantages in being a Jew. Even if those who've received God's word, because that's the biggest advantage, even if they go against that word, because all that that shows is that God's word is right when it points out human sinfulness. And then he comes on to this. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. Do we have any advantage? For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. We are whether it's the unrighteousness of the Roman world, the hypocrisy of the moralizers, the self-righteousness of the Jewish people, saying we're all guilty. So the Bible takes a very different approach than much of our modern society. The Bible would say, look, you feel guilty. You know why you feel guilty? Because you are. And there isn't a single person here who's not guilty. Every single, I don't care your background, I don't care your culture, I don't care your religion. I don't care your sexuality or anything. Every single one of us is guilty in some way. And rather than just leave it at that, Paul goes on to say why that is the case. Now, he gives a series of uh, seven quotations. One is from Ecclesiastes, five is from the Psalms, and one is from Isaiah. And incidentally, it's really interesting that the majority is from the Psalms. The Psalms are so important. Why? Because if you want an analysis of your soul, your innermost life, turn to the Psalms. There is not a single emotion that you feel that is not in the Psalms. On this psychiatrist's couch, you're not given a self-help book. You're given the Psalms. And they enable you to express your inner emotions and your inner reality. They really are that wonderful. Um, some of us have been through really hard times, and we don't know what to pray. We, we struggle, 
And then you come to the Psalms, and in the Psalms, there are prayers for you in virtually every possible circumstance, whether it's doubt, fear, unbelief, guilt, whatever. So Paul turns to the Psalms. Well, actually, first he goes to Ecclesiastes. Let's do that. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Now, there's the first difference, or actually, maybe the first difference was we feel guilty. People will say, well, you're not really guilty. The Bible says we are, but maybe the second difference is this, that we feel guilty not so much because something of, that we have done in our past, but because of who we are. Ultimately, sin is not just things like lying or killing or um, stealing or adultery. Sin is ungodliness. Sin is turning away from God. This is not just saying that if we sin, we will do evil. It's saying that not knowing God is sin, that not seeking Him is sin, that there's no room for Him in our thoughts, that's sin. That's why today, when you go downtown this afternoon, if you do, and I'd advise you not to, it will be swamped with people, and every single one of them is sinning. Now, they're not sinning because they're shopping on a Sunday. They're sinning because in their minds there is no thought for God whatsoever. And it's possible that you could be in this building right now and there's no room in your thoughts for God because you're thinking about everything, everything except God. And you are preoccupied most of all with yourself. There's no room for God in your thoughts because you've got too much hassle with yourself. Like Jesus said, there's no, uh, when he was born, there was no room in the inn. There's no room for God in our lives. We do not love him. The greatest commandment, what is it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then, second, to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love God. But you can't love God if you don't know him. You can't know him if you don't seek him. So what sin is, sin is the revolt of the self against God. Sin is the person who's sitting there and saying, I don't need God. Sin is the person saying, well, when I need God, when I'm really sick, when I need a healing or something like that, I'll come to God. But I don't really need him just now. We are having a day of prayer on Thursday and some will come and many won't. But I would say if you're a Christian, please do take that opportunity to pray because it's St. Andrew's Day and we pray for our nation. And our nation needs God. And if I had to say the number one thing that was wrong in our culture today is that our, as a culture, we don't seek God. There's the famous story of um, when Britain, after Dunkirk, or before Dunkirk actually, it was as Dunkirk was going on, was faced with being absolutely defeated by um, the Nazis in the Second World War. And Churchill asked the king, and the king did this, called a day of prayer and fasting. And that's, I think that happened five times during the Second World War. Can you imagine any of our politicians doing that today? No. And that's what's wrong with this culture. We do not seek God, collectively, individually. But I'll tell you what's even worse is when we as a church don't seek God. If you wanted to, you and I, we could sit down and we could talk about all the problems. Never mind in other churches, we could talk about them in this church. 
and we could have a right old moan fest. But I'll, I'll tell you right now, our biggest issue is not seeking God. And that is sin. The greatest sin that you will commit this week is not adultery. It's not lying. It's not theft. The greatest sin that you and I will commit is when we don't seek God. We don't understand. No one who understands. And that's why we need the revelation of God. He then goes on. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Citing, or we're going to sing in a while, Psalm 14, uh, which is also Psalm 53. The psalm is repeated twice. No one does good. Nah, it's an exaggeration, isn't it? There's lots of good going on in our culture. And every single one of you here has this week done some good. So what is the Bible saying? It's tied in with the first part. They've turned away. They've together become worthless. If you can, I don't know, think of the most evil people. Even the most evil people do good. You know, Hitler liked dogs and built roads. Was apparently kind to women at some point. You'll always find the most evil people, everyone does good at one level, but it's talking about in the absolute sense, in the sense of our motivation, in the sense of where we're at, and it's tied in with they've turned their back on God. In the wisdom literature, in, in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Psalms, you find this idea of wisdom being turning towards God and the opposite of wisdom, foolishness, being turning away from God. I think, again, that is one of the things that we need to pray about, about our culture and about our families uh, about our schools, about our society, turning away from God. But I, I would suggest that there are some of you who are here this morning, and even though you're believers, in reality, you know what you've done? You've turned away from God. You've turned your back on God, and then you moan that God doesn't listen to you. It's a very solemn thing. And Paul's coming in, and he's telling them this, and he's saying, do you know what this does? This affects every part of our human nature. He's going to go on to, to, to talk about that, and we'll, we'll look at it. But it's what we call in theological terms total depravity. It's not saying that human beings, and it's not saying that you and I here are as wicked as we could be. I can't understand the depths of depravity that would enable people to go to a mosque, plant a bomb, and then shoot 27 children, 200-odd people as they come out of that. I can't understand how human beings can do that. But they are human beings, and they do do it. You haven't reached the depth of your depravity yet. There's a lot more worse things that you can do. We could be sitting in this church, and there could be people sitting here, and you have done things that are absolutely appalling. How many times would you sit in a church, and there's somebody there who's abused children? Or a guy who comes out as being all holy and goes home and beats up his wife. Don't kid ourselves. There's all kinds of wickedness and evil within. But what total depravity means doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. But it means that sin affects every area of our lives. And it affects every part of our bodies. Our speech, our mind, our emotions, our sexuality, our conscience, our will, our hearts. And Paul goes on to say that. Now, as we look at this, 
Those of you who are very astute, you see these passages, you go and compare them with the the quotes where they come from, Psalm 14. They're not word for word. Didn't Paul know his Bible? Did the Holy Spirit not inspire him? Did he not? What's going on there? And some people use this to attack the Bible. Well, no, Paul was doing two things. First of all, he's quoting the Greek version of the Hebrew. And secondly, sometimes he's paraphrasing. Now, what's important about that? It's important that it's the sense of what is being said, and it's not the word-for-word literal translation. That's one of the reasons that we have so many different translations in English. And do you know this? They, They may express things in different words, but they may not be bad translations because of that. That's why you can have faithful translations which use different words. But let's go on to say how this, Paul sees how this affects us. First of all, our mouths. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 5, he's quoting, verse 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, and Psalm 10, verse 7. It affects our mouths. Now, if you get a chance, please go onto our website. If you weren't here last Sunday evening, and listen to Andrew's sermon from Proverbs about speech. I've had several people speak to me about it this week, and all of them said the same thing. They didn't come out and say it was a really good sermon. What they said was they felt really convicted by it. It's a really practical sermon. And one of the things that was said is really important. If we follow the Bible's teaching on speech and how we speak, then our lives as a church would be transformed, your home life would be transformed, and your work life would be transformed. That's why the Bible makes such an emphasis on it. We, we tend to go, oh, it doesn't matter what we say, it's what we do. Actually, what we say is what we do. You know, we're cursing and swearing at people or being vicious with people in terms of how we speak, being snarky and so on. And this is why such strong language is used and why Paul repeats this. He says, our tongues are open graves, full of corruption and infection. We practice deceit instead of the truth. I tell you, if you, or maybe, no, we spread poison like snakes. We're filled with bitter curses. The Bible is so contemporary because Paul was speaking about Twitter before it existed or Facebook. Seriously, have you ever seen an argument on Twitter that really just doesn't degenerate? into anger and bitterness. and People say, well, how does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens, because it's human nature and it's reality coming to the surface, hidden behind a computer, unrestrained by human presence, if you like, people actually being there. We spread poison like snakes. It's interesting, isn't it? If you really, really want to do, let's say, if you want to do anyone harm, you want to do me harm, just... Go and whisper in somebody's ear. See that guy? Let me just tell you what what they are saying. I'm sure it's not true, but... And then the next thing... He did this. He said this. She said this. We spread poison like snakes, filled with bitter curses. We practice deceit instead of the truth. If anyone, James says, if anyone does not sin with their mouths, they are a perfect human being. Perfect human being. I don't mean to be offensive to you. I really don't. 
But every single person here, I'm sorry, but your mouths are cesspits. Yes, there's good that comes out of them. But like James says, how can both good and bad come out of the same? But it does. There's good comes out of our mouths. But there's just so much harm that's caused in that way or texting or tweeting or whatever it is that we do. So Paul identifies that and we can straightforwardly see that. Verse 15, he goes on, their feet are swift to shred blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace. They do not know. Quoting Isaiah 59 verse 7 and Proverbs 1 verse 16. He's saying there's nobody who does good. There's nobody who seeks God. There's nobody who really speaks well. And then he says, there's nobody who seeks peace. They bring ruin and misery rather than the way of peace. The way of peace they do not know. Isn't it astonishing that we live in such a violent culture? You know, I find it intriguing that our government wants to ban smacking because it's violence. And yet there are so many other forms of violence within our culture. And there's an ugliness and an aggressiveness. I don't know if you've ever been at a football match where things have turned ugly. Um, and it's horrible being in a mob where violence sets in. Or if you've been at school where two kids you'd think they're as nice as can be, but get a whole bunch of them together. And when you see kids kicking each other, with a mob surrounding them, cheering them on. You think it wasn't just the Romans who did that. You know, the, the violence seems to be endemic within. There are so many cases of domestic abuse, violence that occurs. And one of the problems that's wrong in terms of um, with children as well, that there's a, there's a, there's a loving discipline, but there's, there's a, there can be a violence as well where people just take out their anger on their kids. And it's just wrong. And Paul says to the Romans, you live in a violent culture, but we are violent people. So do we. And then this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Quoting Psalm 36 verse 1. Our eyes look the wrong way. We do not revere God, the one whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil, but we look upon the evil. We put stuff before our eyes which God cannot look at or God does not look at. And we turn our eyes away from Jesus Christ. And again, if you read the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and this is what Paul is referring to, we we grasp it. Psalm 16 verse 8, for example, says, They are those who are always setting the Lord before their eyes. But we set so many other things. We we don't have time for God. And so therefore we become proud and we become presumptuous. Now the whole summary of Paul's position is that our bodies were given to us to glorify God. As were our minds and our wills. And instead we use them to hurt and to harm. Packer summarizes it neatly by saying this, no one is as bad as he or she might be. No action of ours is as good as it should be. So that's our problem. The theme is there. It's there for everyone. Again, you go through these verses and you'll notice it's all, everyone, all, everyone. There's, in a negative sense, there's no one who, who understands and does good and seeks God. And in a, if you call it a positive sense, where the action is we've all 
turned aside and done wrong. And that's why I put the quote from Luther up on the screen. Man by nature selfishly seeks only what is to his advantage. He can love only himself above all things. And, in the, and that is the sum and substance of all transgression. Such self-sufficient persons seek only to please themselves and secure applause, even when they follow piety and virtue. We might object and say, that's not fair. I love my family. I love my friends. Why? Why do you love your family and why do you love your friends? Because they're an extension of you. They're part of you. They're part of your world and your life. And we just find it so hard to move beyond ourselves. Now, our culture solution to that is just simply to say, so what? Love yourself. You need to esteem yourself. But it just doesn't and cannot work for the good of the whole community and to get rid of evil. So we'll come on to the solution to that. But before we do, we're going to sing Psalm 14, the verse that was quoted. Um, and then we'll come back and say, okay, what is the cure for this guilt that we all face? So if Louise has got the words, I think the tune is going to be Golden Hill. The fool speaks in his heart. There is no God, he says. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. None walk in godly ways. Please understand this, by the way. When we're singing this, when it says there is no God, that's not a dig at the atheist society, people who in their minds say there is no God. That's a dig at those, even who are religious, who live their lives as if there were no God. It's a moral thing. It's saying there is no God, or I don't believe God is important enough, so I just turn my back on him. So this is a kind of a... Uh, a song of just what is being quoted here. And we'll stand and we'll sing it, the tune, Golden Hill. Colin will lead us. Let's turn back to Romans 3. Now, you'd think the solution then to this is just simply to say, if only we were more religious, if only we had faith, then if only we had the Bible, if only we taught the Bible, then everything would be fine. Now, this is what Paul says this. Uh, <coughs> sorry, I'll go into the next one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now what Paul is saying here is very, very important. There was a temptation for the Jews as a temptation for us to say, yes, it's them over there. It's society. It's government. It's various groups. And Paul says, no. You have to understand, it's us. We are silenced in our guilt. We cannot be declared righteous by keeping the law. We cannot make up or atone for our own sin. We can't do it by religion. Now, this phrase, the works of the law, has been really misunderstood. And I'm just going to take a wee theological diversion for those who are interested. There's a, a new kind of movement. It's called the New Perspective. Its chief proponent is across in St. Andrews, N.T. Wright, who's a, a good man in lots of ways. He's got a brilliant book on the resurrection. But on this, I think he's gone way off beam. There are others, Dunn and Sanders and so on. And what they say, when they say the law here, the works of the law, they say what Paul means here is not the moral law. He means the Jewish rites. He means circumcision. In other words, he means the culture, the ceremonial not the moral law. And their argument tends to be that you do need the moral law. You, you, you have that in terms of your salvation as well. 
Now, there are many, many reasons that that is wrong, um, not least Paul's own experience. But because of what he says here, he says this is what the law does. God's law telling us it makes us conscious of sin. It exposes our guilt. Phillips translates it in a paraphrase, a very good way of doing it. He says the straight edge of the law shows us how crooked we are. So you could hear a sermon, for example, like the danger with Andrew's sermon last Sunday could have been here in Proverbs, it tells us how we should speak. Now go out and do it. But Andrew's a gospel man, so he knows that that's not how you preach it because that's not what the Bible does it. Because all that does is just pile guilt upon us. And you can be listening to this just now and say, well, we've been hearing about guilt and then all these things. And yes, I do all these things. If you go out of here thinking, right, I'm just going to do better. New year come early. This is my Christmas resolutions. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm, not. I'm sorry. You can't because all that the law does is it just shows us our need. Um, again, Luther on Galatians, he's just absolutely superb on this. The principal point of the law is not to make men better, but worse. That is, it shows them their sin, that by that knowledge they may be humbled, terrified, bruised and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed seed that is Jesus Christ. McShane, the first minister in this church, was once congratulated. He was known for his saintliness. He was called the godly Robert Murray McShane. And one day, I, I don't know, it was just as he was leaving the building here, this woman came up to him and she, she commended him for his saintliness and his godliness. And this is what he said to her, Madam, if you could see into my heart, you would spit in my face. And he meant it. If you grasp who you really are, if you grasp what's in your heart, First of all, you, you're not going to turn around and condemn other people because you see yourself as being the chief of sinners. And secondly, you're going to realize just how desperate your condition is that you cannot make it right. So what is this cure for this guilt that we have, for this sin that we have? I think most of us do what we said at the beginning. That quote about the, they tranquilize themselves with the trivial most people bury their guilt. So actually, Freud was correct. The psychoanalysts were correct. We've got buried stuff, buried stuff. And it's not that as a child we wanted to kill our mother or whatever. It's just we, we, we bury our guilt. All of us do it. Our society will sometimes try to convince us it doesn't guilt. It doesn't exist. Or maybe... Sometimes people will try and convince us, well, you get rid of your guilt by making up for it. But from a biblical sense, we mustn't evade the subject. We mustn't talk about our need for self-esteem or blaming our genes or our background or our education or our society. It's part of being human that we have and we accept responsibility. Now, it's very important. You could be here and stuff could have happened to you in your life that's dreadful. You could have had a really abusive background. You could have had been dealt, as you put it, a, a really tough hand in terms of illness or work or friends or family or things that have happened to you. And the Bible's not turning to you and saying, forget it, it's not important. It's saying it is important. But part of being human is that nonetheless you are still responsible. Somebody abuses you, doesn't excuse you abusing other people. It may explain it, doesn't excuse it. 
because we have a human responsibility. So how do we, how do we deal with this guilt? We, I guess sometimes we say we make up for it. You know the story of um, Kezia Dugdale, the former labor leader, and I'm not making a, a political point here, and I'm not saying whether going into I'm a celebrity is right or wrong. It's completely nuts, but never mind. Uh, as, as a moral issue, let's just leave it there. But so she's gone into this, and of course, there's a bit of a fuss about it. And it, what amused me was how her friends want to justify it. Also, the hypocrisy of those condemning. But that's another matter. Um, she gets offered a lot of money to do it, and people want to make her feel guilty that she's going away from her work and so on. So she justifies it. She says, I'm going to get my message across as if they're going to be talking Labour Party policies whilst eating crocodiles or whatever it is they do in the jungle. I've never watched it. I have no interest in it. But, um, or she says, I'm going to pay back some of my salary. I'm going to atone for it. Keeping the fee, but I'll give some of my salary or I'll give my salary back for the weeks that I'm away. And it is atonement. It's making up for it. So we do something wrong. We think we can make up for it. And that is the way that religion works. But if you grasp what Paul is saying here, if you grasp what the Bible says, if you grasp why Jesus came, then nobody here should walk out of this building saying, I'm going to do better so that I'll be a better person and so that I can make up for the rubbish things that I've done. This from Isaiah. Woe to me, I cried. This is Isaiah. He's had a vision of God. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And that's getting the problem. That's being on the psychiatrist's chair, on the psychiatrist's couch, and getting the issue, realizing how serious it is. That's being in the doctor's surgery and having had the scan and being told, you have cancer, and it's inoperable. You can go and change your diet if you like. You can take these pills if you want. But sorry, that's the news. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. One morning I woke up and I went downstairs, and I did not want to open my Bible. I did not want to pray. I did not want to do anything. I did not want to live because I was so conscious of my sin before an almighty God. But I forced myself. It's like, being hung it's like eating and not being hungry, but you know you have to eat. Even though you're not hungry, you have no appetite, no appetite at all. And I opened the Bible, and I was reading through McShane's calendar, and it was Isaiah 6, and I read these words. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I've never known such joy and such peace. Extraordinary that it's true. And that's where Paul, we're going to go on. We're not going to do it. You'll be glad to hear this morning, but next week we'll go on to about how this righteousness from God comes through Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, the Bible is saying, you're unrighteous, you can't do it, you just can't do it. But God who does it? God takes away 
our sin. And that's the great thing that we have. Every single person in here this morning, I don't need to know, and other people don't need to know what you have done. You're probably not even aware of all that you have done. But you do need to know that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners cleansed beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You do need to know that you can be forgiven. And if you come to Christ, you need to know that you have been forgiven. There's none who understands, no one who seeks the revelation of God. We need that revelation, that mystery of God to be revealed. We need the light of the world. We need the light of the gospel to shine into our dark hearts. But when it does shine in, it is an absolutely wonderful thing. There's a contrast here. John Stott points out, and let me address this to those of us who are Christians. John Stott says that people's mouths are shut because they can't excuse their evil. And then he turns it and he says, but we, and he's talking about Christians, our mouths should be open to tell them about this God who saves, this Jesus who has come. I was asked to comment on the Tesco advert because the radio station that phoned up thought I'd be upset that there were Muslims being shown at Christmas. I just said to them, no, I'm not upset. I think it's great. Christmas is for everyone. I said, I'll tell you why I'm upset. I said, why are you upset? I said, it's the banality of the advert itself and that Christmas is about turkeys because it's not. Christmas is about the light of the world. And our mouths need to be open in testimony, telling people that there is forgiveness, there is renewal, there is new life, all because of Jesus. They say, well, but you don't know what I've done, or you don't know what's been done to me. They say, well, yeah, but God does. And if you just even go through the list that we've read, that's so deep and so profound. So those of us who are Christians, we need to, I think in applying this, we need to be more, dare I say it, more vocal in, in telling people about Christ. And we need to, again, pray that we'd be able to do that. But I also think this, those of us who are Christians, the devil's always seeking to cripple us emotionally by making us feel guilty. And we mustn't use the world's methods to deal with that. What you've got to do is you've got to ask the Lord to let you see that you have actually been forgiven. There is nothing... Really, really, there is nothing that is greater in this world than knowing that you have been forgiven. Again, if I can go back to the, the, the cancer illustration, it's as though you've been told you've got inoperable cancer, and then you go in, and the next scan you get, and they say to you, um, there's nothing there. It's all gone. Well, am I just in remission? No, it's gone. We can't explain it. It's gone. There's nothing there. How does she feel? You just come out of that. You don't need chemotherapy. You don't need to, an operation. It's gone. Our guilt before God has gone. That's why when we take communion this evening, it's such a beautiful thing. Because as we take the bread and we drink the wine, we're, we're not saying, oh Lord, please, next time I'll do better. We're saying, oh Lord, I'm forgiven. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It, it, it's so invigorating and strengthening. It's gone. So if you're a Christian and you're racked with guilt, admit your sin, absolutely. Don't deny that you've got sin, 
But your guilt is gone. Your sin is taken away. Your guilt is atoned for. And let me just finish by saying, if you're not yet a Christian, you need to see the problem or you won't want to become one. I can't plead with you to become a Christian because it's a better way to live or because you'll meet nicer people or because you get to go to church twice on a Sunday or whatever it is you think Christianity is about. I can't do that. All I can say is I plead with God that he would let you see your need of a divine doctor, that you would see the problem and that you would see that you cannot deal with it. And yes, I do pray this. I pray that you would be so humbled and so broken and so in despair that you would turn away from yourself and your own solutions and the solutions of all around and that you would turn to Jesus Christ and just cry out to him, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And there is a promise in the Bible that I love almost beyond any others. Those who come to me, I will never turn away. Never. Jesus doesn't bargain. Jesus doesn't say, go do this, go do that. You'll be f-. He, he, he invites us to him. And if we come, not bargaining ourselves, but just simply saying, I've got nothing, Lord. I've got nothing. Jesus, I come. That is how you become a Christian. And it's how you remain one. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us. We confess not just as a form, but as a reality that each one of us here has sinned with heart, with hands, with mouth, with mind, with our bodies. And Lord, we we know we cannot atone for that. We know we cannot make it right. Those of us who are Christians, the good that we want to do, that we do not do. The evil that we do not want to do, that we keep on doing. Who is going to have mercy on us? Who is going to deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, those of us who as yet do not know you, please send your spirit that we might be convicted and that we might just come to you and just simply pray and ask that you would forgive us not because of the good in us, but because of the righteousness and the goodness and the death of Christ. In your name we ask it. Amen. Let's finish by singing the song, Jesus, lover of my soul. Let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll while the tempest still is nigh. Hide me, O my Savior, hide till life's storm is past, safe into the haven guide. Receive my soul at last. Let's stand and sing this and then please remain standing for the benediction.